Please be seated. You can open your Bible to John 16. We'll look at the end of it. End of John 16, verses 25 through 33 this morning. Text is also in the bulletin. To most of us in the Western world anyway, maybe even the whole world, uh, the word Nike means something. To Brian, it means a paycheck. To the rest of us, it means overpriced athletic apparel. (laughs) Which means a paycheck for Brian. (laughs) It's what the winners are wearing. It's what the winners are usually wearing when they achieve glory and fame, when they clothe themselves with victory. Right? I mean, that's the idea, actually. Nike Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. It's the Greek word for victory, the ancient Greek word and the, the name of the Greek goddess. Think of the sculpture of the goddess of strength and speed and victory, Nike of Samothrace. It's in the Louvre. The, the company logo actually is a depiction of her wings. Right? That's what... That's what it is. In mythology, uh, in ancient mythology, she, Nike, the goddess, is said to fly around battlefields in a chariot. Even though she's got wings, she's also got a flying chariot because you can never have too much winning. And uh, contrary to Donald Trump, probably. <clears throat> uh, so she flies around in a chariot rewarding the victors with glory and fame, symbolized by the crown of uh, laurels. The, the wreath the, of uh, the leaves. In our passage, in verse 33, this morning, Jesus says that he has overcome the world. He has the victory over the world. Literally, in John's uh, Greek, it says Jesus has Nike'd the world. He has Nike'd the world. Does that mean Jesus put on his fast shoes and did all the necessary Strength, agility, and speed training, single-handedly decimating the enemy with a short sword and claiming the victor's crown of laurels with all the accompanying glory and fame. Does victory, does victory over the world that Jesus claims he has, he's overcome the world, does victory over the world mean championships and trophies and commercial deals, all those things that we wish for? Does overcoming the world mean a life of popularity and wealth and comfort? Does vanquishing the world mean exercising vicious political power or brute force in order to stand triumphant over your slain enemies on the battlefield? Does conquering the world mean getting everyone to admire you, everyone to serve you, and, by the way, sort of looking good while you're doing it? Is that what victory over the world means? Certainly not. Not for Jesus, anyway, pretty much as soon as he says, I have Nike'd the world. He laces up his dusty sandals, walks out to meet his death, crucified by the very world that he has already claimed to overcome. And he's telling his disciples about having overcome the world, about this victory over the world, in order to cheer them up, because you know what, the world's pretty much going to kill you too. But don't worry, I've overcome the world. So either he's delusional, we've won, we've won, and then goes to his death. Or he's talking about victory in pretty different ways than we usually understand. It doesn't sound like the American dream on top of the world version of victory anyway. So what kind of victory is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he said, I have overcome the world, and then he goes to his death? What does he mean? 
That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you sent your son into the world, and uh, you did so in order to proclaim your majesty, to show us what kind of authority you have, what your kingdom is like, who you really are, what your love looks like. You've revealed yourself to us through Jesus and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these things seem upside down to us because we're standing on our heads. We pray that you would write us through the the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Help us to understand and believe your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why... We believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus may have overcome the world, but he hasn't overcome his disciples' confusion. Not yet. He knows they're confused. He hasn't solved that problem yet. Apparently, when he's saying, I've overcome the world, it doesn't necessarily include fixing the disciples' confusion. Fixing their confusion was not a prerequisite for having overcome the world, which he says he's already done. During the whole upper room discourse, during his last supper with the disciples, Jesus has been thoroughly, methodically, maybe even repetitively, explaining his ministry, explaining how his disciples are to relate to God through faith in him, explaining what is about to happen with his own crucifixion and his resurrection and the significance that that will have for the world, and explaining the fact that after all of this, He would send his spirit, which would be necessary for the disciples to understand all this stuff that he's been talking about. He's been saying it for our benefit, knowing full well that we don't know what he's talking about. Not yet. In the passage just before this, which we looked at last week, Jesus was talking about his own death and resurrection in uh, end-of-the-world language, which confused the disciples. They couldn't draw that connection yet, and he anticipated their question... We looked at it last week. It said in verse 19, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? And he proceeded to explain things to them, knowing full well that they weren't going to understand. Not yet. So he says in our passage, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He's not just talking about metaphors. He's talking about dark sayings, things that are hard for them to understand. Right? He's... I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. You will understand, right? This is basically a repetition of things he's said before. You don't understand now, 
but you will after the resurrection and after I send my spirit. You will understand. And he continues, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So the bulk of that, we're going to come back to in a few minutes, what he means here, but first I want you to notice the conversation they're having. Notice how the disciples respond to what he just says. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly. Now you're not using figurative speech. Now we know, now we understand that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. That's why we believe that you came from God. We get it. We get it now. So there was a common Jewish notion at the time that the ability to anticipate questions was a mark of divinity. That's what they're saying. Uh, We know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. Right? Jesus had just anticipated their questions. Isn't this what you want to ask me? They hadn't even needed to ask him, but he answered. He answered their questions. They've seen this kind of thing a few times in Jesus' ministry and that kind of wisdom that Jesus has. Apparently, uh, it seems to them to be a unique indicator of his identity. It's interesting, though, and ironic, that basically they're ignoring what he's saying to them. They're ignoring it. He is saying, you don't understand now, but you will. I'm insisting, you don't understand now, but you will. To which they're responding, we, we understand now, we get it, we believe. <clears throat> they don't even understand when Jesus tells them that they don't understand. How could they? So the word of God himself, this is what's happening. The word of God himself, the son of God, comes into the world. He lives in the world. He lives with these people. He ministers in the world. He serves and works wonders. And he reveals God through his teachings and through his actions. And his words fall on deaf ears the whole time. A lot of people respond to his words with open and outright hostility, thus the next few hours. Best case scenario is people are responding to his word. His disciples just sort of smile and nod without really comprehending what it is that he's saying. They say, yes, yes, we believe you. But they don't have a clue of what he's saying or what he's come come to do. In what way can this the word of God coming and falling on deaf ears. In what way can that be considered an overcoming of the world? He, he didn't even win anyone to a real strong, robust faith and courageous loyalty where they'd follow him to the cross. That much is evident, actually, in his response to them. They say, we believe now that you came from God. And he says, do you now? Do you now? Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. It's upon us. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. The assumption is, if they did truly believe like they claim to believe, they wouldn't scatter. They wouldn't abandon him and leave him all alone in a few hours. Apparently, Jesus didn't need their faith Jesus didn't need our faith 
didn't need our understanding in order for him to overcome the world. Victory over the world didn't mean building a huge fan base. Victory, victory over the world didn't mean amassing a following and gathering an army of loyalists. Basically, it's still Jesus alone on one side and the whole world against him, even his disciples not really being for him. He died alone, rejected, betrayed, and abandoned by all. So where's the victory? What does it mean when he says, I've overcome the world? Well, actually, technically, Jesus wasn't alone. <clears throat> he says as much. He wasn't entirely alone. He says, you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, this is where things get deep. Maybe confusing, but it's where our answer is about what it means for Jesus to say that he's overcome the world. Jesus insists, <clears throat> as he goes to face his death on the cross, that he is not alone, but the Father is with him. Everyone else is against him or re rejected or abandoned or betrayed him, <clears throat> but the Father is with him, so he's not alone, and he insists on that. But wait, you might say, didn't the Father forsake him at the cross, too? I mean, isn't that sort of the heart of the gospel that we talk about all the time? Doesn't Jesus indicate as much when he cries out at the cross, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> Didn't Jesus somehow take our sin to himself on the cross and embody it in such a way that the Father couldn't stand to look upon him, that the Father poured out his wrath upon him. Didn't Jesus suffer hell and separation from God when he was dying? Didn't Jesus himself just refer in our passage to a prophecy from Zechariah 13 where God turns against his Messiah? That's what it said. It's what Sarah read in our Old Testament reading, Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword. This is what God is saying. Awake, O sword, O sword of judgment against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's what Jesus is referencing. So God is bringing down the sword of judgment on the one who stands next to him, on his faithful companion. So is he the faithful companion? Is he the one standing next to God? Is he the beloved? Or is he the forsaken? How can Jesus be saying that the Father is with him when he's going to face the death of sinners? Jesus can be saying it by faith. He says this by faith. In fact, God does command that his son be struck down. God does put his son on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. The scriptures attribute this to the plan, the will, of God. God does let evil men have their way with Jesus and put Jesus to death. And, and even through all of this, in ways that might remain beyond our comprehension forever, and the Father looked on his beloved Son with pride because Jesus was perfectly obedient, humbled himself, faithful to the point of death, entrusting himself entirely to the Father and to the Father's good plan. The sword was coming down, 
The sword was coming down on the man who was standing with God. <clears throat> the deep truth of the gospel is that the son was crushed for our healing, that the son was forsaken for our acceptance, that he tasted hell so that we might have heaven. He died the death of sinners so that we might have eternal life with God. That's the deep truth of the gospel. The deepest truth of the gospel is that this was the loving will of the Father. And the Father looked on his forsaken Son, his beloved Son, with approval. The cross happened because God is love. Because the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. The Father was with Jesus. The Father was for Jesus. The Father loved Jesus even at the moment when he's turning his face away from Jesus. He's still with him. The Father and Son stood together, even at the cross, as impossible as that sounds, as confusing as that may be to us. <clears throat> that's the mystery of faith, and that's the victory of Jesus' faith. I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And that doesn't contradict his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He is the word of God. Jesus doesn't stop being the word of God. He doesn't stop being closely connected to God and being begotten of the Father when he's dying on the cross. He is the word of God, and he's proclaiming the word of God, and he's clinging to the word of God, even as he's met with silence, somehow paradoxically. He's quoting God's word. The word of God met the silence of God. He's clinging to, the, to God's word in faith. And the whole meaning of Psalm 22, the one verse of which Jesus quotes, the whole meaning of the whole psalm is that God does not ultimately desert his suffering servant. The singer of the psalm vacillates between knowing God's faithfulness to his people and experiencing God's abandonment, and he lands on the triumphant note of praising God for his faithfulness, being with his people, being good to his people. Jesus insists, even in the, the verse that he quotes from the cross, he insists that he knows God to be his God, my God. He knows his father to be faithful. He knows his father to be standing with him, even as God's sword of justice descends on him. To quote Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And that is what he means by having overcome the world. That's what Jesus means. No one in the world trusts that God is good. No one in the world believes the Father's love. In the garden of delight where humanity lived in bounty, Tasting the fullness of divine generosity, it took only the merest insinuating question about one piece of fruit to make us suspicious, to doubt, to disbelieve, to distrust. God's goodness is love to us. And now we live in a world that's just full of unbelief, where suspicion of God is the norm, the unspoken assumption of everybody, all the time, everywhere. We're bombarded and flooded by messages, you cannot trust God, you cannot trust God, you can't trust God. 
Unbelief is the engine driving our hearts at the slightest stimulus. We start cranking out whole lives built on the assumption you cannot trust God. You cannot believe that he loves you. In fact, you can't even know him. If I'm going to have a good life, I need to deny God and get this good life for myself. How can I do that? Or else all is miserable hopelessness, and I just despair of God's love. I despair of ever knowing God. Despair of him being good to me. Despair of his goodness providing any meaning to my life. <clears throat> Jesus was tempted to that, to that unbelief. He was sorely tempted. The worst taunt came while he hung on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. ever anyone was tempted to doubt the Father's love, it was then and it was there. The world had given up on God's love long before that moment and even tried to convince Jesus, tried to persuade him, the Son of God himself, that the love of God was not real. It was an illusion. It was a lie. God is not with you. But he wasn't having any of it, and that's what it means that he overcame the world. He wasn't having any of it. In the face of all opposition, all temptation to doubt, abandonment by his friends, even the sword of God's justice coming down on him, even the very wrath of God against sin falling on him at the cross, Jesus trusted the Father. He committed himself to the Father with his very last words. <clears throat> and that's the deepest revelation of the gospel to us. The absolutely secure relationship between the Father and the Son that nothing can break, not even death. It's reflected in the Son's complete trust, his complete submission, and it's vindicated in his resurrection. That relationship, that secure relationship between Father and Son is vindicated in his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And that's where those earlier verses come in. Go back and talk about those. In verse 28, he says, I came from the Father... I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. So it's this concept that you see in the scriptures of his mission, having been sent by God into the world, his mission, his relationship to God as a human being, and then his return, his return to God, his mission. God was the Son of God, sent by the Father into the world to become a human being, his relation to God while he was here, he obeyed, he came, he, he related to God, the Father perfectly, even to the point of death. And then he returned. He was raised from the dead and received into glory at God's right hand. And when the Son of God did all this, he did it not just as the divine Son of God. He did it as a human being. He did it as one of us. He obeyed, he died, he rose again, he returned to the Father, carrying our humanity with him all the way. Jesus related to God the Father perfectly, never succumbing to unbelief, never believing that, that God had abandoned him, not ultimately, never, never succumbing to temptation to sin. He did all of that as one of us, and for our sake, a human being has overcome the world. The whole world of unbelief, so that we might be received as children of God in his name, so that we also might 
have the victory over the world of unbelief so that we would trust that the Father really does love us. In that day, he said, in that day you'll ask in my name, and I, I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. That's true. He's our mediator. He's our priest. He does ask the Father on our behalf, but that's not the point he's making here. The Father himself loves you. The Father loves you. Leslie Newbegin said, Jesus will no longer be, so to speak, a separate mediator standing between us and the Father. We will come in Jesus' name as those whose life is his life, who can say, Abba, with the same freedom as Jesus, who are beloved by the Father as Jesus is beloved by the Father. That's what he's saying. The Father loves you. That's why he sent his Son into the world to die. Because he loves you. And he gave us the right to become children of God through faith. And this is the victory that Jesus has won for us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our weak faith, in spite of our inability to understand everything about Jesus. The whole point of his upper room discourse was to communicate this to his disciples. This is sort of his summary at the end of chapter 16 here. I've said all these things so that you would remember, so that you would have peace, so that you would take heart as you go forward into the world from here. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, it'll be hard for you in this world. The hardest thing is, and the thing the world is trying to get you, that change it wants to make in you, the hardest thing for you in this world will be to trust that God is good. Your faith will be tested. You will experience things that might seem like God has abandoned you. Isn't true. You'll be tempted to unbelief and you'll fail. Here, have peace that's in me. I've overcome all temptations on your behalf. Where you failed to believe, I've had the victory and I share it with you. I've had it for your sake. <clears throat> I've given you the right to become children of God, even though you've doubted the Father's love. Take heart. God does love you. I've believed it on your behalf to the bitter end and beyond, and the gospel is the proof of it. So John, when he writes his letter, uh, 1 John, not the gospel that we're reading, but 1 John, he can say to those who trust in Jesus, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You have Nike'd the devil and his temptations to disbelief. You did, because the word of God abides in you. And he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome, for he who is in you, that's Christ through his Holy Spirit, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. His victory is yours. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what it means to overcome the world, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that his relationship with the Father is perfect, and that that's been shared with you. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who sided with the Protestant resistance to Hitler during World War II, Nazi Germany, 
Uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, you can debate whether he was in the right to be part of the conspiracy to put Hitler to death. You can debate all that. <clears throat> but he was caught. He was put in a concentration camp. And he was eventually hanged. He was executed there. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty sad ending uh, to a great life. But while he was in prison, while he was in the camp, <clears throat> he wrote letters and papers and poems. And uh, Elizabeth, actually this week, called my attention to one poem called Who Am I? Who Am I? And it's a poem where he struggles deeply with his own identity. He struggles. Who am I? How does one, def- how does one answer that question in a world like this? How do you find security in your identity? How do you even answer that question, who am I? Am I defined by what other people think of me? Am I defined by what I think of myself? Does my life have significance because of the the accomplishments, the achievements, my successes? Does my life lose all significance and value because of my failures? How can I find the courage to face what I'm facing in this world? Dietrich Bonhoeffer looking forward probably to his death. He probably knew that was coming. In the face of that and all the fear, where do I find peace when all the questions seem to torment me? And ultimately, he turned to the depths of the gospel for his anchor. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I'm yours. That's, that's the thing that makes me who I am. That's the victory I have over the world. That's my courage to face what's coming. Whoever I am, I'm not defined by my own answers, by my own faith, by my own understanding. I'm defined by the love of God the Father, which is revealed through the faith of Jesus Christ himself on my behalf. And I know this love is true, even though Jesus died, because God the Father raised him from the dead. I belong to him. And he is with me. And that, that confession is the victory over the world. When you're wrestling with doubts, you're struggling with deep questions about life, you're wondering how to go on in the face of despair, you're asking where God is in all of this, when it looks like he's abandoned you to meaningless suffering, the Lord knows that you and I are the floundering types. And he knows it better than we do. And at that time, you cling to Jesus' faith. Cling to Jesus' faith, which has overcome all of it. And let him lead you in saying, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it can be very difficult for us, overwhelmed by the circumstances and the thoughts and the lonely questions of our lives in a world that is rigged to get us to disbelieve you and your love and your word and your gospel and your truth. Um, It's hard for us to hold on to the the simple statement that we're not alone, that you are with us, that you do love us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Even in the midst of all of this, we pray that you would help us to look to Christ, who, uh, knowing that you were about to slay him, nevertheless said that he would hope in you, he has peace because of you, he's not afraid because of you, he knows that you are with him always, 
even in the bleakest, darkest, most silent hour. We pray that the faith of Christ himself would instruct us and more so that it would uh, live in us and dwell in us as your word and your spirit dwell in us and make us new. We pray that we would be able to say along with Jesus, our leader and our savior, that you are with us always and that you do love us. Let us hold fast to that simple confession because it is victory over the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.